In the summer of 2017, Charles Emery had been diagnosed with dementia. Doctors felt it was no longer safe for the 82-year-old to continue living in the two-story Seattle home he'd been sharing with his brothers for more than 50 years. His niece was named his legal guardian, and she began the process of gathering Charles's belongings so she could move him to an assisted living facility. The three Emery brothers never married. Charles, the oldest, had worked for decades at Seattle Children's Hospital. His younger brother, 80-year-old Thomas, had a variety of jobs over the years. And his youngest brother, 78-year-old Edwin, had been a longtime Boeing employee. They were reclusive, largely staying holed up in their home in the exclusive Green Lake neighborhood that was filled to the brim with things they'd collected over the years. Newspapers and books lay alongside handwritten manifestos detailing the rape and murder of children. Old pots and pans were piled up along with items of children's clothing, including dirty underwear. Even in the crawl space, there was stashed a pink child-sized hat partially buried in the ground. When Charles's niece came across a child-sized penny loafer that contained a tiny bottle of vodka with her initials written on it, she knew it was time to call the police. There is a subculture that thinks incest is a good thing. It's a very normal thing, that there's nothing really wrong with it. These guys were one of those families. Would the Emory women ever get justice? Did the brothers' crimes extend beyond their own family? And what connection could the brothers have with several missing girls whose cases remain unsolved to this day? I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime. Kim, my face, I feel like I've just like brought it down like 20 inches with the frown of like disgust. Yeah. And this is a, something that we talked about with your mentor, kind of my quasi mentor, even though I've never met him on podcasting. We talked about the story with him and his advice was what? Not to do it. Not to do it. And so we're now episode seven. And we decided to do it. And we decided to do it. <laughs> and he said not to do it because... Because people don't want to hear the details of children being abused. And I completely understand and agree with that sentiment. His feeling was, if you want people to listen, if you want to be a popular podcast, and you want to get subscribers, you need to do what the people want to hear. And this is not what people want to hear. And Unfortunately, I- <laughs> it's reality. It happens. There are victims out there. And in this particular case... I don't want to give away too much at this point, but this is still an open investigation. Detectives are still looking for more victims, and these older gentlemen are still out there. That's in, that's incredible to me. I remember covering this as a reporter when it came out, and this is one of the reasons why we wanted to do this podcast, because all of a sudden, this house in Green Lake was the, the subject of all of this investigation with helicopters and the FBI. The cadaver and, dogs. And cadaver yeah. Do- yeah, I mean, it was crazy. And I knew back then, like, what is the deal with these brothers? Like, three brothers living together, never marrying for 50 years. 
it has all the hallmarks of there's there's so much more. There's got to be more. And there is. This is not one of those true crime stories where we begin with neighbors say they kept to themselves but seemed like some nice guys. Like, no, from the get go. People thought that these three unmarried brothers who had lived in this hoarder house for 50 years were creepy. The house isn't in the backwoods. They did have another brother who lived in the backwoods, of course, and we'll cover that a little bit later on. But this two-story home is in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in Seattle near Green Lake. Charles Emery bought it back in 1962, cost just $12,500 back then. Today, of course, it's worth over a million. The world finally got a look inside that house of horrors in the summer of 2017. Charles was taken to the hospital for a health issue, and that's when he was diagnosed with dementia. Now, how old was this Charles? Charles was 82. He was the oldest of the three brothers living in the home. They had a younger brother who was 78. His name was Edwin, and his brother Edwin had a twin sister named Edna. And it was Edna's daughter who was granted guardianship over Charles, and he was placed in a nearby nursing home. Basically, she was the closest healthy living relative, and so that's why the niece, identified only as SK to protect her identity, was given guardianship. So SK went to the brother's home. She started the process of cleaning out the garage, and she discovered not only that penny loafer with the vodka and her initials on it, but she also found child exploitation photos, children's clothing like the stained underwear, dozens of children's penny loafers, toys, and movies that were also magazine clippings of missing and murdered young girls, and handwritten notes detailing kidnap, torture, rape, and murder. And inside one of those penny loafers, again, was that airplane Sized bottle of vodka and the inscription inside of it or on the bottle read SK's first half ounce of liquor came from this bottle. Did SK know that that was had she been molested by her? Yes. So what do what do we know at this point? So we what know? we know is that this was a family abuse situation. This was an incest situation. Um, SK, her mother, both told police that they had been abused by the brothers when they were younger. But nothing was ever really done about it. Did SK know? Did she have a recollection of why that penny loafer, was that her penny loafer with the vodka in it? Yeah, she did. Uh, Apparently there was a connection that it was routine for them to have the kids wear penny loafers before the abuse started, according to the manifesto and according to what was reported by SK and her mom. They also reported that they would give them things like soda with vodka in it ahead of the abuse. And so the, the abuse happened all these years later. They don't have any children. And so she's tapped to take care of her abuser, her abuser. OK, so Seattle police say it was clear the brothers had spent a lifetime amassing child pornography and sexually abusing children. There were also handwritten manifestos by Charles, what his brothers referred to as Charles Hobby. That was detailing the rape and murder of children in the home. Edwin, the youngest of the three, confessed to being the computer guy in the family. He was the only one who actually used a computer, and he would look for child pornography online and then share it with his brothers. He would print it out. In fact, he was the only one of the three who had any kind of history with police. Several years earlier, he had taken his computer in for a tune-up, and the IT tech reported to police that he had found a single lewd image of a child. Captain Mike Edwards is commander of the high-risk victim section at the Seattle Police Department. It was a single-image case. They're not comfortable with charging those because 
they're not a registered sex offender. It's just difficult to get a conviction. The only thing we could do is to go out and see if they'd be willing to talk to us, which they weren't. So it shut that case down. When interviewed by police, both Thomas and Edwin denied knowing anything about child pornography, children being murdered. But they did have one interesting reply to the investigators when they were asked about the topic. They said that it was, quote, possible if everything the officers were saying was true. So they were still protecting their brother. And themselves. And themselves. But they did say, which is a huge thing, if they're smart enough to know, hey, you know, when Edwin got busted with that child porn to not really answer the questions and not let them search their home. So it shows that they have some cunning and a little bit. A little Police bit. say they were really good at changing the subject during interviews. Yeah. But the fact that they would say maybe when they lived with him for 50 years, I mean, one could say it would is probably. Right. So when Charles was interviewed, he said that all those stories he wrote about kidnapping, raping, killing, dismembering children were fantasy And he denied that he himself ever possessed any kind of child pornography. But in the end, all three brothers were arrested and the brother's niece and her mother were formally interviewed. The abuse that they had suffered at the hands of the brothers was so severe that Edna, the twin, was forced into foster care. I think it was generational. I think that at that time, in that generation, they just felt that was more appropriate. So she gets sent away. And like this I said, is making me nothing so happens with any of the rest. It was reported differently back then. Differently? It reported <laughs> it, you know, there's a behavior issue going on. They can't, you know, large family, lots of kids. And so basically there were seven kids in the home and the parents were just like, hey, we're having trouble wrangling all of these children. One of them wanted to go into foster care to get away from the chaos. And so the authorities went ahead and, you know, followed their wishes. Talk about victim blaming. So oh, she yeah. gets molested by her brothers. Then she is the one that's got to leave the house and go into foster care. And there was never an investigation of any kind into any sort of abuse. It was just seen as the the siblings weren't getting along. So what do you do? Well, why don't we just move one of them out and their problem solved? This is like reminding me of uh, we're going to be doing the Green River Killer episodes coming up soon. And so I don't want to detour it here. But a lot of those victims were could be the sister where they were put into foster care, victims of their own family, and then they get victimized again. And it's like, when are we going to start listening and taking care of these kids. I mean, nowadays, there's even more foster kids that are staying in hotels because they can't find enough placement for them. I mean, it's just, I'm glad we've come further than what we were. And Mike, you know, will probably say, yeah, it's better than what it was back then, but it's still... It's still not good enough. It's not good. Yeah, well, and not only was it the twin and the niece that were abused, but it's alleged that Charles and Edwin also abused their niece's young daughter. Three generations, all abused by the same brothers. How now? And I don't I'm asking the question because and you may not even know the answer, but why would the the sister let her daughter with these guys and then the daughter let her daughter with these guys? So she said that she allowed Charles Emery, the man who had abused her, to take her daughter to Hawaii with him at least once because her mother would also be on that trip. And she thought her mother would be able to protect her daughter, even though her mother was never able to protect her. Or herself. It, it, it's, it's an unbelievable line of thought, mm-hmm. but that is, that is the, the reasoning that, that the niece gave. 
So we've got three generations abused by the same men. Neighbors say they were totally unprepared, like you said, for just the crazy onslaught of law enforcement that came onto the property. The FBI, Homeland Security, sifting through this house filled with garbage and child pornography. They also went through outbuildings on the property. They dug underneath looking for buried bodies. And they didn't find any, but they did find a flyer for a missing 10-year-old girl from a neighboring county. Lindsay Baum had disappeared after going to a friend's house June 26th of 2009. And remember that brother? That was a huge case. Yeah, so remember that brother I was talking about that was uh, living out in the woods? Well, his name was Don, Mm -hmm. and he was the oldest brother. So there were four altogether, but he had passed away in 2016. Kim, I'm not getting a good feeling here. No. (laughs) He's the eldest brother of these other brothers. Yeah, his home was in Shelton, about an hour and a half outside of Seattle, but that's not far from where Lindsey Baum went missing. So, of course, investigators immediately searched his property for over 30 hours. They were, again, using cadaver dogs, scouring every inch of the 17-acre property. No sign of Lindsay. Her remains were finally found, actually, just a month later. They were uncovered by some hunters on the other side of the state. And I think this is really interesting because they searched the homes in August of 2017. Lindsay's body was found in September, just one month later. And to this day, investigators have not been able to identify her killer. So in my mind, the question remains open. Whether these brothers had anything to do with the disappearance and death of Lindsay Baum. After the research, and I don't want to get ahead of your story, but after the research that you've done, what are you thinking about these brothers? Are they smart? Are they calculating? Are they? Do you think that they were capable of killing? I mean, we know that the I would say absolutely brother- capable of killing. I mean, nobody thinks about death, writes about death, makes pictures and and mementos of death without you know obviously some morbid fascination with it. I mean, unlike us, where. <laughs> yeah. You know, we talk about these stories in a way that I hope comes across that, you know, we're rooting for the victims. We are rooting for the people who might be victimized. And we're hoping that by hearing these stories that that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. Um, These guys were not. They were rooting for the for the killers. So now, Charles, you said he had dementia, the one who had the manifesto. So they couldn't really. Could they interview him? They they interviewed they the other two brothers. So but- all three of them were arrested. Originally, they were being held on bail. Two of the brothers, Thomas and Emery, they spent just nine months in jail because they were convicted on the child pornography charges. But police could never find enough evidence to prove there were ever any children actually in that home. So nine months, they're out. And they're back at that Green Lake home. Charles, Wait a second. Well, Charles is not. Charles is at Western State, which is a state mental facility. <laughs> not, he a, was, not a good place. He was basically deemed, you know, unable to defend himself, mentally unable to defend himself at trial. And so he has been sent to Western State Hospital, where he will likely remain for the rest of his life. Okay, so, so at least he's out of, you know, harms. I mean, he can't hurt anyone. But the other two... They are back in that Green Lake home. And from what I understand, when I was following the story as a reporter, there's like four elementary schools. There's parks, there's schools, and there is, um, you know, an order that keeps these two brothers from from being near children. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I mean, they live in this residential family type neighborhood and, and they have to be able to come and go from their home. And there are neighbors around them that have children. 
So to say that there is a lower risk because they're not allowed to go to parks and schools would probably be very naive. So in our gingerbread story, which was our very first episode, it's the same kind of situation where they busted the guy for having the child pornography. But as a level one sex offender, they're registered, but they're not available to be viewed online. Yeah, I I double checked on this because it was so hard for me to believe. But these guys, if you go and look at the sex offender registry, they're not going to show up, which makes me frustrated, infuriated, shocked, Mm -hmm. just like, if these guys don't show up in the sex offender registry, then what is the point of having one? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a very fair question. So, so are they still investigating? Very much. So this is an open investigation. They still have physical evidence that they are going through that came out of these houses. They still have a number of missing persons cases that they're trying to see if there is any connection with these guys. Um, their tip line is open. And the captain said, you know, he would love to hear with anybody who has information on this case because they really want to ensure that, you know, they can bring justice to the Emery brothers, even though the sister, her daughter, her granddaughter were abused, and those cases will never find justice because the statute of limitations has expired. This is an interesting question, I think, to ponder, and I'd be really interested to see what our listeners think about spending resources on a case where, you know, the one brother's dead, the one that's you know, was in the woods. The other brother's in Western State Hospital with dementia. And then there's the two that basically are still living in Green Lake. And we don't know if they're up to their deeds. We don't know what they're doing. Is it worth the taxpayers' money to continue to, I mean, some people would ask, you know, do we want to spend taxpayer money when we don't have enough police officers on staff right now and budget constraints and all those things to find justice for potential victims that we don't even know? You know, we don't we don't know. I mean, what do you what do I you would th- argue? Absolutely. In a case that has this much evidence and the fact that there are so many missing persons, missing children in the area that that deserve to be found, that deserve justice. I would say absolutely it is worth it. Here's a little bit more talking about the the family abuse history of the Emory family. We uncovered out of you know interviews that there was a, a lot of sexual conduct and activity against these other siblings and their children much later on from these brothers and never reported. The family did not apparently concern themselves that it was anything to be worried about. It was normal. Um, We also, you know, got information from the statements that this went back several generations, that type of behavior, that it was somewhat normalized within the family. I mean, none of us would ever think that way, but this family apparently did. And then when these you know, uh, girls were able to get either get out of there or placed someplace else with old enough to get out, then they left and never came back. And they've kind of gone to the four winds. I mean, as far away as California, different states. And so it's taken us quite a bit of time to track all of them down just to see if, you know, is there anything that drops within that chargeable window? And all of them were well outside. So, so far... They have found multiple victims, unfortunately, because of the statute of limitations. There's nothing they can do about it. That is disgusting. I don't think there should be a statute of limitations on I don't child abuse, especially sexual abuse. That sticks with you for your entire life. You will never be a quote unquote normal person mm-hmm. after suffering abuse, especially at the hands of 
family members and, and having it not be recognized. I almost feel like the only way an abuse victim can move forward is for the abuse to be recognized and dealt with. Mm-hmm. But when the abuse is denied by the entire family, the entire community, those victims, I don't see how they could ever really move forward with a normal life. Well, this this as I was thinking about this case, I was thinking about that. What's that Disney movie where uh, where their parents <laughs> die? Every single one of them. Oh my gosh! No, not that one. Every movie. Okay. This is the one where it it's about a few years ago, and it's spa- I'm I'm totally spacing on the name, but basically, it's like it shows there's the happy and the sadness and the oh what is that one the emotion called? inside out inside out. And my son is always wanting to watch that, and I can't handle watching that because you see these things happening to this child the bullying and her parents getting divorced and it's so it just shows you how fragile childhood is like children Mm. are so you know they can bounce back for the most part you know they're they're so resilient but you don't that's the outside and what they project and the inside of like you know these little synapses of creativity dying these little things happening when you think about sexual abuse molestation it's like a part of you i'm not going i don't want to be dramatic about dying but it, it changes who who you could have been and i think that then society on top of that you know the girl having to be kicked out and they go to the winds and they just disappear and and it's like it, society suffers and not only on an individual basis but but as a whole Right. Well, and and when it's normalized in the way that this was normalized, like he said, it would go on for generations because there was this patriarchal family structure in which, you know, the men made all the decisions and the women just kind of shut up and went along with what they were told. So if these children, as they grow up, continue to believe in that kind of philosophy, a way of life. Well, you can see that they clearly did. Right. Then it just perpetuates the abuse. It just continues. Another generation, another generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It not only scars the victim of the abuse, but any future relationship, any future children that they might have. Yeah. I really hope that if anyone listening has any information about the Emory brothers, even if it's not something specific, even if it's just a feeling that you have, I would call the police. Especially if it's a feeling that you have, because we've learned as we've done this podcast we need to honor people's feelings like, hey, I thought, but I didn't say anything. Those are the most important tips that police need to be hearing. And the great thing about investigators is that you can come in with a feeling and they can piece out details that you might not even realize are important to the investigation. Mm-hmm. So you may not think you have anything important, but if you came across the Emory brothers or you know any of their victims and you just had a feeling Take it in. You never know what memories or details might come out of that. Yeah, because they're still out there. I mean, they're still driving around in their vehicles. <laughs> they're still getting to walk freely. And, and you know, who's to say that they don't deserve, they serve their time, and we don't know. Okay, I hate to okay. say innocent until proven guilty, mm-hmm. but in this case, I think we can. I actually had a woman say to me, I couldn't believe this when I was talking about that gingerbread case. I mean, the gingerbread house case. And I said, um, he was a pedophile. And she's like, no, he's not. He just had pornographic images. And I was like, it made me check myself to think, well, wait a second. I guess that's that's true, but it's illegal. But pedophilia is the abuse, the sexual abuse of children. Right. And somebody had to take those sexualized photos. 
Right. So there is pedophilia there. I mean, maybe the person who is looking at the pictures wasn't the one who actually took them, but it's a perpetuation of pedophilia. I agree, but I was surprised that she said that. There's just a different when it comes to this topic. I mean, and people are sensitive. Well, she said, just because you have those images doesn't mean that you're a pedophile. And I was like, well, it's illegal to have those images. Why would you have those images? Well, why would you defend someone who well, has those images? Yeah. They don't, de- I, <laughs> they don't I deserve did. a defense. I, I mean, <laughs> I know I, it's I wrong. Was, I, but when we talk about, this is a difficult situ- uh, difficult topic to discuss. Yeah. And so when I heard her say that, I was very surprised. And then it made me think of, well, technically, if you have pornographic imagery it is against the law but it doesn't necessarily mean that if it's you are underage th- yes people yeah. that, that you are a pedophile but i i just think it's a real th- <laughs> where's the where's the line there i don't know yeah i mean i guess i would consider them a pedophile because they're perpetuating the sexual abuse of children well and that's what i that's exactly what i said yeah but you know that's what's nice about being hosts and not reporters yeah. is i mean well we are reporters but hosts in this particular situation and so you know me personally i would too yeah i would i I don't make that distinction the other thing i think is is a little interesting is um you know we talk about how crazy it is that this is going on for generations in this family and it was sort of normalized to the point where they didn't report it they didn't think it was wrong it was just you know normal this is what happens in families and it's it's infuriating and it's shocking and it's unbelievable but at the same time we were told not to do this story because people don't want to talk about children being abused. So in a weird way, community as a whole acts that way. Yeah. That we don't want to talk about it. This is too gross. This is too wrong. But for the for the opposite reason, right? So the in the family, it was, well, this is normal, so we don't need to report it. Mm-hmm. In, com- in the community, it feels like, well, this is so gross, so egregious, we don't want to talk about it. But when you don't talk about it, that's how things stay covered up. Well, and I think that people don't want to believe that yeah. it's happening. And a lot of the people, because you never expect it. You never, I mean, there was a, a teacher at my kid's school. Oh, awesome teacher. Everybody, everybody liked this teacher. And then it comes out that, in fact, this teacher was molesting children. I think it just goes on so much more than what and it perpetuates it because we don't want to talk about it and we don't want to. Well, if we don't have solid proof, I think Mm -hmm. people are afraid of accusing someone of something so heinous without solid proof. Yes. But at the same time, it's like, yeah, but if you blind yourself to it, if you don't even investigate, even look into it, Mm -hmm. you're never going to find the evidence. So I, I think that there's a lot to it's a it's a pretty heady discussion. And I think that. It's tough. It's a tough, like finding Neverland. We talked about that I, I with the Michael Jackson case. And I grew up loving Michael Jackson. I grew up loving, you know, Thriller. I mean, such a huge fan. His creativity. I mean, he was just like someone I really looked up to. And then, you know, the whole thing, I just didn't want to believe, you know, as an adult that he would do this. I didn't want, it's not like I didn't want to believe the kids. I just didn't want to believe that he would do that. And then you watch Finding Neverland. I watched the first episode and it was crushing, like to hear 
the grooming of not only the the kids but the parents it's and it's a it's a long process it's not like it just suddenly happens and i just couldn't even watch the second episode so you know i'm glad that we decided to go forward with this episode it's it's difficult to think that there are this is an extreme version of that where the family because most families as you said you know this is completely foreign to them yeah but there's all gray areas in between there and it's not just the abuse they're also missing children that they you know suspect could possibly be connected with the emery brothers there's also a missing woman Donald Emery, who was the eldest brother, he's the one who owned that home in Shelton and had died a year before this investigation started. He actually did get married. He was the only one of the brothers that ever got married. But in 1987, he filed for divorce because he couldn't find his wife. Uh Uh-oh. Sandra Emery, she would be 79 if she were still alive today. We don't know what happened to her. She disappeared. And he was granted his divorce in 1987. Um, In absentia? In absentia. Like she was gone? In his statement, in the signed documents from Donald, he wrote, quote, I believe Sandra is not a resident of this state, or if she is in the state of Washington, she is concealing herself. I have made careful inquiries of relations, friends, and business associates, and I cannot learn of her present whereabouts. So either she's dead or she's hiding. So either she's dead or she's hiding, but she wouldn't have to hide all this long. I mean, he's been dead for how long has he been dead? Well, since 2016. Oh, okay. So not looking good for her. Not looking good for her. You know, what's interesting, too, is like, what is the deal? I would love to know the histories of the brothers. What created this? You know, what family dynamic? Because you talk about the abuse of the girls, but what is their story? I mean, there's got to be some dark darkness going on in that family. I I mean, I don't want to make excuses for them, but it it would be interesting to know. There are some segments of society even today that that think that incest is normal. There is a subculture that thinks incest is a good thing. It's a very normal thing, that there's nothing really wrong with it. Um, We've had cases, as a case of a Marysville couple, who actually was utilizing the internet to set up different encounters with other people who were like-minded and would have sex with their child and they could have sex with the other person's child and they've been having sexual encounters with their own child. So there is this just bizarre group out there that does think incest is actually not a bad thing. It's a safe way to get to broaden the exposure of their own children. These guys were one of those families that Clearly, it was like, well, you know, boys are being boys, and we'll just let them go ahead and explore themselves, and then it's good for, you know, the daughters because, you know, they're getting in a safe environment. They're, they're getting uh, exposed to this type of thing as well. They're not the only family that have this belief system and the, you know, the patriarch of the family makes all the decisions and the thinking that, well, you know, your daughter's going to have sex eventually. And if it's in a controlled environment with someone who cares about her like a family member, then that would make for a better experience. Yeah, I mean, I don't th- even think that they have books do they even have a lot of books out there on incest? I mean, it's like I've I never just, looked. I, I, <laughs> well, I'm just it's not something back to the point that we just don't want to talk about this. It's right. like it's so forbidden. And it, as well as it should be, it's like incest is like cannibalism. It just goes against 
the species. <laughs> and so yeah. I think that we just know, like, we don't want to talk about it. I mean, I'm feeling uncomfortable right now. All right. Well, let's talk about what's coming up in the next episode. And that sounds good. So talk about an odyssey. We're doing two episodes on the Green River Killer or the River Man, as Ted Bundy would refer to the Green River Killer. So in the next two episodes, we're going to talk to uh, the detective who was there on the scene at the beginning of it all, Detective Dave Reichert, who eventually became the King County Sheriff and solved that case so many years later. We have so many details that I think people are going to be really surprised. And the interview with Reichert was just amazing and I can't wait to share that story with you. That's coming up on the next Scene of the Crime. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio and if you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast. You can do that on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify um, even on our website www.sceneofthecrimepodcast.com And join our Facebook page. We have so many conversations going on now with people who either were familiar with the cases that we've been doing or just want to add their two cents. um, And we would love to have you. And and Kim and I are on there frequently, so we will definitely uh, respond to your questions or comments. And Carolyn and I will be back next week with another Scene of the Crime.